So uh, this week we'll talk about algorithms and we have a special guest, Marcelo. Marcelo is a senior software engineer at Tundra and he is an author, the author of Advanced Algorithms at Data Structures, which is a book, uh, I think it was released recently, right? It, it's out of MIP now. Uh, congratulations. Uh, so you. it's a book about algorithms uh, and actually which reminds me that I forgot to talk to ask Manin's marketing department for a couple of free copies. Maybe I should do this uh, uh, by the time when we actually release this recording. Uh, so keep an eye. Um, so Marcella works uh, in like with graphs, optimization algorithms, uh, genetic algorithms, machine learning, and quantum computing. And uh, yeah, so also one thing that I noticed in your bio is that you authored the neat sort adaptive sort, sorting algorithm. Maybe we'll talk about this uh, a bit as well. So welcome. Hi, uh, thanks a lot for inviting me. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. Yeah, um, it's uh, my pleasure as well. So before we go into our main topic of algorithms, uh, let's start with your background. Uh, can you tell us about your career journey so far? Sure, of course. Um, well, I've worked most of my career as a web developer or in uh, or on data infrastructure. Um, I started with the web developer, and, and then uh, I worked for a long time, five years, like in a government-owned company in Italy. Uh, then I moved. Uh, uh, I started was working remotely with startups, and then moved to Ireland to join Twitter. And after a couple of years, I moved again, and I'm now in Zurich since 2016, um, working for Microsoft, Apple, and now since last year I joined Tundra, um, wholesale um, online shop. So does uh, Tundra have anything to do with uh, forests in Russia? <laughs> no, unfortunately, no. I honestly, I, nobody knows like well uh, where where the name exactly comes from, uh, but um, it's a it's a, a nice, very nice company working on world cell. So I don't know if this word means anything in English, but in Russian it means that uh, this area where it's very cold, like a few things mm -hmm. uh, grow there, and it's like uh, you know, uh, yeah, so the kind kind of forest, uh, but a very cold one. Okay, yeah. So uh, how, like you, as an author of a book uh, that you wrote about algorithms, so and the topic today uh, is about algorithms. Uh, many people wonder, like uh, especially those who are starting uh, their career, how should they approach learning algorithms? Do you have any suggestions for for that? Um, well, sure. I mean, it's uh, it depends on mostly, I guess, uh, on the needs that everybody can have. Um, it can be learned at very different level, depending on how much, like, how much you need to, le to learn, how much in depth you need to learn. Um, one thing like that I would suggest, and uh, it's the way that I was told, the way I, I was 
suggested when I started my, my studies, is that for, for algorithms especially, it's, um, it's not important like to focus on the details when you are learning. The, the most important thing that the most important things that you need to learn are like what it, that there is such an algorithm that when when you can use it in which situations what problems it can solve and um, perhaps also how efficiently it can solve it by uh, knowing that there is such an algorithm that solves a certain problem and that you can find it like when you need and where when you should apply it is the most important thing it's even if you don't remember the algorithm by heart, like nobody can remember all the algorithms by heart, um, but you know where to look for it, it's uh, it's perfect. Yeah, I remember when I was studying algorithms. So actually, it wasn't a part of my studies when I was at university. So this is something I was taking uh, outside of university, sort of uh, self-studying. And many courses actually focused on all these derivations, on uh, mathematical proofs and all these things. And it seemed like that uh, is an important thing, uh, right? Uh, like to really understand how the algorithm works, yeah. to really understand like, okay, if it say it's uh, O and log N, that you can prove it uh, using some, I don't know, difficult uh, mathematical stuff. So this is not something we should focus on, right? So we should more focus on applications. Yes, I would say so. I mean, there is also a funny story um, about this. Um, you know, uh, like the um, Google was created, of course, by Page and Green. And when they started the, the studies, like apparently, or at least the, the story goes, that they heard at a conference about um, like from an Italian researcher um, about this idea of uh, like an intelligent crawler that did the, the search in, in a different way than just indexing like uh, Yahoo or AltaVista were doing. And uh, this guy like went to the to his Italian university and proposed the idea, suggested the idea to um, his tutor and they told him like that uh, this would never have a future because you couldn't prove that it was right. <laughs> so yeah, I mean it can be tricky and dangerous focusing on the mathematical proof of something. It can be important. It's important, of course, if you are working on a paper to prove that an algorithm works and uh, can be used in order to understand when it can be used. But it doesn't mean that if you don't know or don't work out the math, it will mm -hmm. be useless. Yeah, yes. I can tell you a reference there later. <laughs> yeah. uh, so basically, like when we learn algorithms, we should focus on more applications than, uh, than you know, uh, proofs. Do you know any good uh, reference for, you know, like basic algorithms, uh, like I don't know, sorting and uh, whatnot? Um, I, I've, let's say I can, I, of course, there are a lot of resources online, there are a lot of courses and websites. There is this series of videos from MIT about algorithms, which is very, very good. Um, there is a um, Team Roth Garden course on Coursera, like spe specialization. Oh, I found it uh, really extremely good. 
is really great in explaining things clearly and as simple as it gets. Um, and if you prefer books, like I, I can suggest uh, Grokking Algorithms from uh, published by Manning, which also like is a gentle introduction to basic the algorithms and other structures. Mm -hmm. So, in your opinion, uh, what is the most uh, what are the most important algorithms and data structures that we should uh, know? Like we, by we, I mean developers. Also, I kind of include data engineers and data scientists here as well. But general, anyone who programs, like what kind of uh, algorithms, and data structures they should know. Um, okay, well, importance is relative, right? Like it, mm -hmm. it depends on, of course, like the field you're using and what you are actually doing. It's maybe I would say the the basic data structures can be the most important just because like are the ones that quantitatively can make the, the greater impact. So if you are misusing a, an array or a list and like you still you can earn performance of your application a lot or your program and not just performance actually. Um, and it's far more common that you are using these data structures than the most advanced one. So basically, you need to know uh, array list and I guess uh, when to use them, when to use set, when to use uh, like a dictionary, right? Yeah, for, for example, knowing when you should use an array or when you should use a list, depending on what you have uh -huh. to do. Like if you need random access, of course, array is the, the best choice. But if you are always adding um, elements in, in front of what you have, then array is complicated. Like you will have to uh, do a, a lot of uh, copying and moving on memory and yeah, it's, mm -hmm. it becomes a mess. Um, and besides arrays and lists, like, like the bare minimum for me would be like stacks, queues, uh, these mm -hmm. kind of structures. Mm -hmm. And sets, uh, I guess, as well? Sets, sets and, yes, uh, of course. Yeah, yeah. Basically, yeah, yeah. Yeah. what, let's say, if we use Python, then Python comes with a uh, if I may, set of different data structures. Um, yeah, so basically, dictionary. dictionaries, yes, like uh, basically knowing how, at least some idea, how they implement, are implemented internally. Uh, like what is the, uh, like if you want to add something, how does it work inside, right? If you want to check if something is in a list or is in a set, uh, how does it work, right? And things like this. Yes, yes, absolutely. I mean, like we, with algorithms, you always have to uh, distinguish the implementation and the abstract data structure. That, so the, the first step would be understanding what's the abstraction behind it. And then you can implement it in many ways. Like for example, a dictionary, you could implement it from, with anything from a, a list, an array, uh, or uh, a tree or a hash table. And all these implementations, have, like pros and cons, they do well on some operations and uh, do poorly, perform poorly on other operations. Um, from uh, the point of view of uh, who uses a language like Python, you are more interested in understanding the abstraction behind it. So 
what's the uh, API of the dictionary, for example, what are the operations that you do. Then if you delve into the language, then you, if you are performing time critical operations or memory critical operations, then you might want to deep, like to dive into the implementations and understand how you can leverage those or uh, if they can present any problem, any bottleneck. So basically, you can take it, uh, all the data structures that you typically use or you should use, let's say from Python or from any other language, and you just learn it's uh, the, the API, like all what are the possible methods, uh, and try to understand how they work internally, right? Yes. Yes, like for example, you mentioned the set. It's important to know that uh, what's the contract that the client have with, this, with the data structure, like I said, so that you have, you can add elements, you can remove elements, but there will be no duplicates, and um, it will like you can also expect to that insertion, for example, check are reasonably fast compared to an array, or this. Mm -hmm. although this is. This also depends on the implementation. Yeah, and you mentioned that you worked as a web developer at some point. And I heard this uh, from uh, many web developers and also from data scientists as well. Um, let's say, let's talk about the web developers. So web developers today, um, these days, they uh, do um, simple things, like they create simple web applications. And they say, okay, you know, I don't actually need algorithms for that. I All I need is, you know, this uh, library, React or whatever. Uh, it works and I don't need to use algorithms. Uh, so how do I learn algorithms if I don't need them at work? Right? And we can also, uh, like, it's not uh, unique to uh, web uh, developers, right? Uh, there is sure. also a question from Vikram, like, how important it is for data scientists to know that? Like, if we don't use this at work, like, how do we how do we learn these things? Okay, uh, so let's say first, uh, I'd like to challenge the, the first assumption, so that mm -hmm. that you don't need the algorithm for that, and because you, you you as a web developer or as a data analyst, data scientist, like any of these jobs, uh, one uses algorithms more than you can think, right? It's uh, like even the basic ones that we mentioned earlier, like you know, nobody, uh, I, I cannot believe that they are not using arrays or lists, mm -hmm. and that can make like a big difference, especially um, if you are time constrained or resource constrained, as sometimes it happens as a web developer, or if you, the, the, if you have to handle large data sets uh, as a data scientist. Um, but even more than this, like uh, a web developer can be in, this, in a situation where using the right data structure make a difference, makes a difference. Like you have to provide some spell checker functionality, and then you, if you know what bloom filters or tries are, that you are in a better position. Uh, otherwise, you might end up reinventing the wheel or providing a suboptimal solution, um, whether or not you use a third-party library or 
some existing code. But I mean, to go back to your question, uh, how do you do, like, how do you master algorithms if you don't have the chance to work every day in your... Uh, yeah, I don't implement job. type checkers, uh, like yeah. spell checkers every day. So uh, yeah, like how do I learn how to use Bloom filters then? Um, so there, like there are a few alternatives, I guess probably the best way might be like if you are interested in the topic, there are a lot of resources, so you can do some uh, learning on your own. You can set goals. Um, but if you are looking for extra motivation, uh, say um, joining some competition like Google Code Jam or something like, like that, uh, can like be uh, like a good push for for. Um, give you a sprint like you you can be motivated to 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 learn more and more than that it gives anyone the chance to uh, you know learn on the field and so on uh, have some practical uh, experience with these algorithms like not just knowing the theory uh, but actually learning to use them uh, and to take advantage of, of these algorithms or data structures. Mm -hmm. So basically, if you cannot do this at work for whatever reason, try to do this outside of work, right? Yeah, uh, well, you can, uh, you, it's, um, it's not common to have the chance at work to implement actually these algorithms mm -hmm. from scratch, but you can learn about uh, how to use them as well as at work. And you, one thing that people can do is like, if they see that there is a bottleneck or uh, profile uh, their application and see the space, like some room for improvement, uh, that they can try to learn what pro what algorithms can solve similar situations and try to apply them, uh, especially if you use a mainstream language, a mainstream programming language at work, it's easy to find libraries that implement uh, mm -hmm. uh, common and more advanced algorithms and then you see how, how they can make a difference. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah, and uh, one thing, uh, one mistake I often uh, notice in code is uh, people accidentally use, uh, for example, instead of using a set, when you check something like checking for containment, people use list. And I think even simple things like that, right, uh, uh, for a web developer or for a data scientist, this is a very, very common operation, right? So you yes. have something that comes in and you want to check if this is something that you already know or not right and what you typically do is you check if this uh, i don't know x is in a collection that i have right and um, if we just replaced list with the set then we see like an order of magnitude uh, improvement in speed, in speed right exactly yes and similarly i've seen this with uh... Mm, just keeping track of elements, like adding elements to a list and using, uh, adding it to the wrong end of a list, for example, in, in Scala uh, or in, it would be the same in ASCII, functional programming languages. Um, adding it to the wrong end of the list, it can cause the, um, the a, a simple linear operation like constructing this list to become quadratic and slow and time out your server, for example. Mm -hmm. 
And uh, coming back to the question from Vikram, uh, how important is data structures for somebody who is uh, into data science, who is a data scientist? I think we just mentioned this uh, particular use case, like us checking for containment. And as a data scientist, I do this operation every often, like every like quite often, right? Um, so in your opinion, um, are there other cases where it's very important to know uh, data structures for data scientists? Yeah, as you said, like uh, whenever, like especially if you are working on then on huge data sets, even the slightest improvement can be can make a dent, like can make a difference in the running time. Uh, and even more, if you can have an order of magnitude, an improvement of an order of magnitude can make a tremendous difference. It can be search, like replacing, uh, speeding up search. It can be uh, using a blue filtering instead of a dictionary uh, to, to keep track of what you have already seen. Um, it can be like uh, a ne nearest neighbor search for uh, like to look into the, this huge data set to search into multi-dimensional multi data sets. There are a lot of cases. I think they are even more important for data scientists. Yeah, so you mentioned Bloom filters and you mentioned this uh, approximate uh, neighbor search. And uh, yeah, this is actually something I wanted to talk to you about because uh, in your book, this advanced algorithms and data structures, I think you cover them. So maybe let's talk a bit about uh, your book. So well, first of all, well, what is there in the book? Can you tell us uh, a bit about that? Hey, sure. Th thank you for asking. Um, of course. Um, so well, the idea of writing this book, the idea that we had was providing some sorts of bridge between theoretical, no, theoretical knowledge on algorithms and textbooks and more practical like hands-on books. So in my book, like, you, you can find an approach that goes, um, that is like layered in several level, levels and it covers both the theory and more practical aspects of how to use the algorithms. I mean, the, the main um, focus of for each data structure or algorithm that uh, we covered was um, coming up with a like real life, real work use case um, where you can actually make a difference by using the right algorithm. And also, I, as we have discussed earlier, the problem can also be the opposite. So you can make a negative difference difference by using the wrong data structure in the wrong place. And so if you learn to avoid that, it's already like great and you, you can improve a lot the performance of your applications. Um, the book is goes through 18 chapters in, in three parts. The first part and the appendix, the appendices cover the basic data structures, big annotation, some like cover the grounds, let's say. And, and then uh, we start going into more and more complicated algorithms. And this, then in the second part, 
we cover nearest neighbor search and some machine learning clustering um, and explain the uh, map reduce programming model. And then finally, then in the third, third part, uh, we, we covered graphs and we talk about graphs and uh, evol evolutionary algorithms and how to, well, every optimization in general and different options uh, for optimization from like random algorithms to like random sampling to gradient descent uh, to even like simulated annealing genetic algorithms. Yeah, thanks. And uh, well, since it's called advanced algorithms, uh, does it uh, require some knowledge of algorithms already? Uh, like, does it have a prerequisite? Uh, we, we try to cover the basics uh, in, in the appendices and, mm -hmm. and in the first few chapters. So you should be good, like you shouldn't need uh, anything more than, than it's in the book. But of course, if you have for if you um, had algorithm one on one, or if you have previous experience uh, with uh, with the topic, you are like of course in better shape, mm -hmm. and it, it helps. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's the... not needed by them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thanks. So there are a couple of questions about the resources we mentioned. I will put all the resources later when we finish the talk. And I guess like if somebody watches this. Uh, MIT course that you recommended or the Coursera course by Team Rav Gardner, uh, Rav Gardner, then probably this will give uh, enough foundation for sure, right? To be able yes. to continue with your book. But even if they don't uh, do these courses, you try to cover everything in appendices as well as the uh, first chapters, right? Yes, indeed. Uh, we, we cover like everything you need to, to start uh, it's not required that you don't need complex uh, math or knowledge of linear algebra or basically only very very in, like initial knowledge of programming uh, we don't use uh, a programming language a single programming language we use pseudocode so that everyone with any background can understand like the how the algorithm works and it, the, the only thing that maybe they may help is knowing what a for loop or a conditional mm -hmm. is but anyway there is an appendix only for also for that uh, explaining how, how they work like these basic constructs and yeah i know that you also have a github repo where all these algorithms are implemented like in uh, basically every possible language, uh, right? <laughs> Not five. every possible one, but my, like the goal and my idea is yes, to have them in as many languages as possible. For now, most of them are implemented in Java, JavaScript and Python. I will uh, soon add Scala mm -hmm. and I was hoping to add C++ and Rust uh, mm -hmm. later. So you also have a lot of uh, fun, I guess, trying to implement that in uh, all these different languages. Yes, yes, that is, that is fun. Do you plan to cover Go as well in one of the, maybe like after you cover these ones? Yeah, well, why not? Yes, I love Go. Okay. Um, 
Yeah, so uh, you mentioned that you're in your book, you have multiple parts, and uh, um, first you start with introduction and then you go in more complex ones. So when I look at the table of contents, uh, so a few things uh, like uh, they're quite interesting to me. Um, so I got interested in bloom filters and uh, this uh, approximate nearest neighbors. And coincidentally, this is what we also talked about previously. So yeah, I thought maybe we can cover a bit uh, this, uh, these data structures and algorithms a bit. So yeah, maybe let's start with uh, bloom filter. So what problem do they solve and why do we need them? Yeah, maybe it's, it's not a coincidence because like they are very useful for the data, data science. <laughs> so that's yeah, so. all. Bloom filters, yes, um, it's quite interesting in data structure. I think it's um, it's surprisingly not as widespread as I would have expected. Um, so let's say that that to start, let's say that Bloom filters solve or help solving the, the dictionary problem. So. Uh, the dictionary, a dictionary is a data structure where you can uh, save, like it's a container, so you can save entries, but the, the main point is being able to retrieve them quite fast. And like, as we were talking earlier, uh, there are many different ways you can implement it. For example, you can implement it as a, as a tree, like as a hopefully balanced tree, binary search tree and then you can get uh, good performance for almost all applications. But maybe the, what people usually associate with dictionaries is hash tables. They, in, in many languages, they are like synonyms. Um, Gloom filters are, work similarly to hash tables. Uh, they actually leverage hash functions but they, uh, they have an advantage, like, or they have a different approach compared to hash tables, and that allows them to uh, use a limited memory. So if you have a large data set that you have to put into a dictionary, you might not have enough memory or enough disk space to use a hash table for it. And this happens, especially like if you want to store in these containers, uh, not like primitive data, but uh, um, uh, variable size data, something like strings or something that can be serialized to a string. And in that case, like the other advantage of um, Bloom filters is that you can, uh, first you can store each entry independently, like regardless on uh, how, how much uh, space they, they require, like uncompressed, uh, you can store them with the same amount of space. And you know, we need the same, uh, uh, a limited, like a fixed number of lookups to find uh, those elements. And the, of course, like you have to pay a price for this and the price can be a little bit performant because you may have to hash, like you will have to hash many times the same entry uh, 
each time you have to look up for it or store it. While with Ash tables, you only run the Ash once. And the other like bigger disadvantage is that you can have false positives with Bloom filters, which means that if you look look up for an entry, uh, the Bloom filter can tell you that it was stored, although it actually wasn't. And this is caused by the way that uh, actually they work internally. I try to explain these in the chapter. Eight. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, I don't know if we have time to explain it. No, yet. probably I not. But uh, yeah, I just uh, wanted to uh, like ask what uh, are they used for? Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, so yeah. basically, maybe to summarize, you said. Uh, like we need to use this data structure when we have limited amount of memory. It uses hashes to look things up. Uh, so everything is hashed uh, and we use it to check if something is in our Bloom filter or not, right? Yeah. So for containment, um, but the way it works, sometimes it gives us false positives. So it can say, okay, this item is there, but actually it's not right. So it gives because of the, like it's a limitation. Yeah, sometimes it's not a big deal. Um, for example, like you might decide to, like you, you, let's say, let's first say, like you can use, like you can see these Bloom filters used in many, many places. For example, in crawlers to check if a page was already visited or not, or uh, like by looking at the URL or even at the content of the page. And you can, they were used in spell checkers. Now they are replaced by tries, but they, for a long time they were, uh, they were used for that. And they are used a lot in routing tables to check if uh, an IP address was already visited or not, or, or and is in the table or not. So in all these cases, if you have a false positive, it's not a big deal. For example, in a crawler, you will process the page again. Uh, if the, false positive ratio is limited and with Bloom filters you can balance um, the amount of memory you use with the false positive ratio, ratio then uh, you can control how often this happens and how often you pay this penalty. Mm -hmm. Yeah, maybe I can also tell about a use case I had um, a couple of years ago at the previous company. So the company is an at tech company, so they're doing advertisement and they're selling advertisement on mobile devices. So basically like all these annoying ads that you see when playing games. So yeah, we <laughs> contributed to that. <laughs> yeah. And basically, so the, the way we used uh, Bloom filters, so every device, like let's say you have an, uh, a phone, right? So mm -hmm. a phone has some ID, some device ID, right? And uh, yeah, and let's say, I am a returning um, user of an app. So I have used an app uh, already and uh, the sort of the owner, like the, whoever uh, owns the app, they want to bring me back. Like, because I, I played like, I don't know, 10 levels and stopped doing this. So they want to show me an ad saying, hey, come back, finish your game, right? So this is a simple scenario. So basically what they have, the... Uh, they have the device IDs of everyone who played the game but stopped. And you can think like there are uh, like hundreds of thousands of uh, device IDs, right? So if a game is popular, many people play it, right? And yeah, basically the way we were doing this, we see if somebody, let's say 
I open an app, a different app, and uh, what the app is doing, it's sending a request to, like basically there is some auction happening under the hood, uh, doesn't matter. So basically what we do is we check, okay, do we know this person or not? Like, is it a returning user or not, right? And then imagine from everyone in the world who uses, uh, uh, who's playing, who, who's holding an F1 right now, who's trying to see uh, like an ad, or who we want to show an app, ad, ad, we want to see a subset of those users who are returning users, right? And for that, we use the Bloom filter. So basically like, uh, okay, do we know this? Because it's impossible to store everything in memory, right? So we yes. just check, okay, do we know this user or not? And if it turns out that we actually don't know this user, even though we think we do, it's not a big deal. We just show that person uh, an ad, right? And then, okay, we lose like uh, a fraction of a cent, but uh, you know, the world doesn't stop because of this, right? And uh, yeah, surprisingly, it's used a lot in uh, these uh, industries like that, like for marketing, like every time you have, you want to bring back a user, then yeah, you need to somehow store all these users. And yeah, so this is when uh, I learned why Bloom filters exist and why we actually need them because I had no idea. Like previously, I just watched uh, this uh, course on Coursera by Tim uh, Rob Gardner, and I thought it's something complex and I have no idea uh, why these things actually are needed, right? Yeah. yeah that was the perfect use case. <laughs> Yeah. Um, what about search trees? So do you have another part of your book where you talk about approximate nearest neighbors? And uh, yeah, so maybe we can talk about uh, this use case as well. So um, like, uh, why do we need this approximate search, uh, search trees for approximate nearest neighbors? Um, yeah, well, in general, we need uh, the nearest neighbor search in also in many fields especially on, like in data science. Um, the perfect use case is when we have multi-dimensional data because um, if you think about, uh, for example, binary search trees, you have, they are a fast way, like a way to do fast search in a static or slowly changing uh, set. Of course, you can use uh, automatically balanced search trees like red black trees, for example, to have to you also uh, table more dynamic sets. But I mean, uh, beyond the point. Um, the problem is that if you this data is basically unit dimensional, if you, you put in a binary search tree unit dimensional data, and many many times, especially in the last 10, 15 years we have to deal with multi-dimensional data sets, like even geographical data, geolocation, you have, with approximation, you can think as bi-dimensional data, but you can have like also other data sets uh, as we see every day, like with even hundreds of features. So uh, the, the binary search, binary search trees don't generalize well in multi-dimensional data. But still, we need a way to do, like, to search these data sets faster than going through all the data points in a linear scan, like a good for search. Um, especially because like, if you have, you have hundreds of, of features uh, for a single point, 
it might be costly even to compare a single data set data point to what you're looking for or to run any operation on this data point. Um, the way we can do this is uh, this neighbor nearest neighbor search. Uh, there are different data structure. Let's say the, probably the first one that was invented to deal with this particular problem was uh, were the KD trees, and it's like 40 or 50 year old, years old uh, the structure, and and um, for a long time it has been the the, the best like the uh, cutting edge solution for this. Um, however, like uh, now there are even better data structures. KD trees had some problems; they worked well. Uh, up to a certain dim dimension of the data set, like not very um, high dimensional data sets, like small to medium dimensional data sets, and also had a problem with dynamics uh, data points. Now, in, the, in, in my book, I will go through KD trees to you know, what yeah, readers have appetite and to explain the basics and why nearest neighbor search is important. And we go to a real case like using geolocation, for example, for a delivery system or an online shop to make, like to handle uh, thousands or millions of orders and to find for each of them the closest warehouse from where uh, some goods can be shipped. And, um, but, in, in the other chapters, we also go through uh, newer alternatives like R trees or SS trees, like similarity search trees, uh, which handle better high dimensional spaces uh, and also allow this approximate nearest neighbor search. But the point with the approximate is uh, that sometimes we don't need the actual best possible results but we can be good with a close to optimal result. For example, if we have like two warehouses close to the destination of a parcel, it doesn't really matter if one is, uh, like if they are both 10 kilometers more or less far away, it doesn't matter if one is 100 meters closer, it's the same, right? If we can perform this search much faster and and, and like find the suboptimal solution that however is only 1% or 0.1% uh, farther away than the best possible solution than in many, many, uh, in many, many areas, many, many problems. It's pretty much the same, like it's, it's okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah, do you... Uh... Like I, I have an example in my uh, mind, but I'm not sure if this is uh, like a great example, if uh, search trees work for that. So I work at Elix and Elix is uh, basically like an online marketplace and we have a recommender system there. So in the recommender system, um, so basically you want a person uh, you want to recommend the person like things that they might be interested in. Like think of Amazon as well, like uh, basically based on what you saw previously, we want to recommend something that the user might be interested in. And what we do for that is we each 
each item we represent like a vector, um, like, I don't know, 16 dimensional vector. So it's basically uh, each item is an array with 16 numbers, right? And uh, then what we do is we do a similar thing with the user. So we represent the user as a 16 dimensional array, right? So you have an, an array mm -hmm. for user and you have an array for each item. And then what we do is we want to find the closest possible array to the user array, right? So we look at all the items and we try to find yes. the closest uh, uh, one. And uh, yeah, often we don't need the most closest one, right? We just need something that is suboptimal, right? So, like it's close enough, right? Is it a, a good use case for that? Yes, a perfect use case, actually. It's um, these or finding similar images if mm -hmm. the images are translated to feature vectors, for example. Uh, and for example, similar images to a product that the, the user already saw or similar users of even finding not just the closest one, but uh, the five closest uh, profiles to some users or five closest images. Yeah, mm -hmm. it's a perfect use case. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because we have we use a library for that. It's called Fies from Facebook. And uh, I, to be honest, I don't know what it actually uses inside. I just know that it works faster than, uh, you know, brute force search. <laughs> and that's all I know. <laughs> So probably it yeah, uses one of those uh, data structures inside, right? It's, it's possible, yes. And um, it's, uh, these, these data structures are really used a lot in machine learning. Um, in both, like in these cases, uh, in clustering, uh, they, they, for example, like k-means or um, other clustering algorithms can use these nearest neighbor search and this data structure to perform nearest neighbor search to speed up um, to speed up the algorithm. Yeah. And uh, yeah, so we have a question that is uh, maybe quite related to the point I just brought up about uh, using the library and not necessarily knowing what is inside. Mm -hmm. So the question from Bincode is, uh, is it necessary to know um, data structures or knowing how to use a framework is more important. Like for example, if they think about Bloom filters, we can take uh, just off the shelf implementation of a Bloom filter uh, as a library uh, and just use it. Or sometimes uh, we actually need to know how these things work inside. Um, yeah, the most important thing is to know how, how they work like on the outside and what you can expect, uh, um, what can, the contract that you have with the data structure, the guarantees that you have from that. Uh, um, most of the time, you can be you can be fine not knowing how the internals are. Only if you have to improve uh, your performance or if you run into problems. The other case where you might want to know how things work is when uh, you have to do some customization. So you cannot use something off the shelf uh, and you have to write your own. Or maybe the another possible case is when you, you're using a, 
a new programming language like for which there isn't such a library yet so you have to write your own you have to be the first one um, but i would say it's more common that maybe if you have to use a customized solution customized solution then you might have to implement it yourself uh, you it can give of course there, there would be workarounds maybe uh, but they you Sometimes with these workarounds, you lose the game that you have with the data structure. I was talking about like this use case that I mentioned in a, a tech company. So actually, we ended mm -hmm. up there implementing Bloom filters ourselves there because we needed to have an exactly the same implementation for multiple languages, for Go, for Java, and for JavaScript, and for Python as well, because mm -hmm. we were data scientists, the data scientists work in Python, so that's why the stuff we create, like if we create a Bloom filter, we need to be to make sure that uh, this Bloom filter can be consumed by uh, whatever other language we were running. So what we ended up doing was implementing Bloom filters uh, ourselves. I did that. I remember that I just re-implemented it. I took the implementation from somewhere, so I cannot claim I actually know how it works. <laughs> it seems to work. <laughs> but I remember with Bloom filters, um, yeah, what you actually need to know, like because they, they give you these false positives, right? Um, and you need yes. to somehow know at least a little bit about the internals of the Bloom filter, just to understand that you have these false positives and how you can actually control how to you. Uh, like based on the size of your set and based on the this false positive uh, error rate, like how can you make sure that you can minimize this error rate? So this is, you, you need mm -hmm. to, to know a little bit about that to, to use Bloom filters. So yeah, probably you need to, to know a little bit uh, about that. But maybe for the first use case, uh, yeah, you can just go ahead and use and use, like for example, in Google Guava, which is a, uh, like a library in Java, they use a pretty good uh, preset uh, configuration. So you don't really need to care about what is inside. They just give you an okay uh, Bloom filter, right? And then if uh, like performance is not good, then you can try to understand what's going on and to try to tune it, right? Yeah, it's perfect. Yeah, success. But also, your, like your use case was, um, yeah, I. An ideal example, I guess you need a serialization of this Bloom filter and like has having the same seeds for the hash functions through mm -hmm. all the sets. And yeah, that's another case where you might want to have control on these things mm -hmm. and you cannot do that. Yeah. Most so we were producing uh, Bloom filters in a Python job because we're a data scientist. That's all. <laughs> Uh, the only language we know, right? <laughs> but then, uh, yeah, it was used uh, by uh, production systems written in Java and in Go. And uh, we needed to, and for some reasons, JavaScript, I don't remember why. But yeah, um, we needed to be able to read these uh, Bloom filters that we produced. Uh, yeah, it was fun. I, I liked doing that. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, what do you think about... Uh, so speaking of algorithms, uh, what do you think about um, uh, job interviews? So in job interviews, uh, companies seem to really, um, how to say, be obsessed about, uh, <laughs> at least that's my, uh, you work uh, at Twitter, yeah. you work at uh, Apple, right? Microsoft as well. 
So, like, I have an impression that if you want to get into such of these companies, you really need to know, uh, like, all the algorithms one-on-one. Then you also need to know maybe more advanced algorithms, like you need to know trees, graphs, and so so on. What do you think about this? Like, is it uh, reasonable um, that these companies expect everyone uh, to know these things? Um, so, well... <laughs> I mean, they have, this company have a lot of experience interviewing people, so it's, it's hard to, for me to, to say no. <laughs> Maybe but, it's working. <laughs> uh, well, I can say when I was at Twitter, we worked and I worked actively in changing the way the interviews were done. Because my feeling is that when you focus an interview on uh, only on challenges and algorithms, you are not interviewing the candidates on the right on the right knowledge, on the right skills, because they will maybe they will use them. And certainly it's good to know if a candidate has an idea about like the performance bottlenecks and how they can screw everything by misusing an array or, or a simple data structure. But it's not the only part of the job. Like there is much more. We, I've seen candidates that they did stellar job on the algorithms interview and then they could not use Git. Uh, mm -hmm. So they, they had to catch up a lot on their first month um, on the job. Um, so I think it's uh, like, maybe it's too much, like the, it's too much of an opposition. It's good to have some questions on this, but it's also good to have a, um, a different set of, uh, of skills tested in the interview to, to mm -hmm. like I, I like mixing the a different kind of interviews doing some pay programming and even some paid programming or some debugging in the interviews mm -hmm. and so you can see how it actually is working mm -hmm. with this person and what they can do on the job like debugging bloom filters or debugging something? <laughs> no, well, that's maybe the much for an interview. Because I remember I had an interview with, uh, was it Facebook? I don't remember. Well, some of these um, uh, top uh, tech companies. And yeah, the questions there were, uh, like, I don't remember exact questions, but it was like just mind blown that uh, in 35 minutes, you need to solve two these kind of problems, like two, not just one. And then if you spend like 30 minutes solving one, and then you have just five minutes for, for solving the second one, it's kind of too cruel. Uh, yeah, um, so, it's also difficult, like when you have a limited time, maybe you don't have the right idea immediately also because of the pressure. So I don't think yeah. it's, very, it's a very good way to... Yeah, and then uh, they also had uh, for me two such interviews in a row. So in the first interview, oh. they had like yes. two two tasks yes. like that, and then the second one well, was uh, like too much to me. Um, yeah, oh, yeah, I didn't notice one interesting question is um, um, so I'll, there are quite uh, a lot of algorithms and data structures. So for data engineers and data scientists and uh, everyone who works with machine learning, what you think are the most uh, needed ones? I think we talked about arrays and sets and uh, that. Is there anything else that uh, should also, like every data scientist or data engineer should uh, keep in mind? 
Um, it's, uh, I mean, for sure, the basics. Uh, I would say, if, like, at, at least knowing what uh, binary search is, is, uh, is a must. If, if, Especially like, if you want to get to Facebook, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's for sure. <laughs> Now, if I'm going to interview for these companies, I, I like uh, I have had my fair share as well. I have had similar experiences as you. Uh, I think you need to know all the basics and graphs as well, like DFS, BFS, even Dijkstra, but probably not much more than that. Well, uh, sometimes I got uh, like questions that could have used uh, interval trees or more okay. exotic. It's data like uh, uh, like you know, there are these contests for people uh, mm -hmm. for programming yeah. contests uh, that they they need to use some sort of very smart data structure like this in their old days. So these people will have no problems getting into Facebook. <laughs> yeah, no, indeed. I actually once was uh, interviewed by one of the former champions of such a competition. Ah. Yeah. Did <laughs> it was pass? quite challenging. No, I did not. Yeah, so, um, yeah, maybe last one. Um, can you suggest uh, good resources where, um, like, when we where we can build a project to learn data uh, structures and algorithms. So basically learn them by doing them, by using them. Um, like besides uh, all the material that you can find. Uh, yeah, like one you suggested, I think uh, you suggested taking part in online competitions, uh, like mm -hmm. yes, Topcoder and uh, yeah, there are many of uh, them. Um, but is there anything else we can do to like maybe build our own, uh, I don't know, pet project to learn uh, data structures and algorithms? Um, uh, there, there are sites like uh, Lead Code and Code uh, Wars, okay. for example, like where you are, uh, you have these kind of problems and you can try to solve them. You can also see other people's solutions. Mm -hmm. So you can learn uh, like new techniques to solve the same problems. And well, I don't know, maybe like one solution is uh, working on like finding an open source project that you can join or starting one of your own. And you can also get feedback on, on, on that, right? Especially if you start, if you join an existing project, like it's well run, running, um, you can get a lot of feedback. But even if you start yours and you put yourself out there, you might get some some feedback. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you. Uh, yeah, while we were talking, uh, there was uh, another question popped up. So maybe we take this one, and uh, this will be the last one. So. Um, do you recommend data scientists who are interested in uh, data structures and algorithms to jump ship uh, uh, and go into compiled languages like C++ or Java um, rather than using Python? Like, is there any advantage uh, going this way? Well, I think Python is perfect right now for data scientists. It's, uh, it has the 
best libraries for this. And it's like a, an Esperanto for, for data science. <laughs> Everyone in data science knows it. That said, you might find yourself uh, in need to implement, to actually implement, if you actually need to implement the production model, then it's like C++ more than Java that you might need. Uh, it will allow you to uh, write more performant code, like work on parallelism, multi-trading, and have greater control um, on, on the low-level details. Uh, I would say that it can be quite important. It's kind of the difference, maybe sometimes it's a ten kind of the difference between data scientists and data engineers. Maybe data engineers work a little, bit, a little bit more on the C++ side than data scientists, mm -hmm. but it can be useful. Mm -hmm. I, I wouldn't suggest like to switch one for the other, to switch from mm -hmm. Python to C++, but maybe to learn both. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and uh, there is one, th there is a thing called Cytom. So you don't actually need to ditch Python completely. You just uh, use Cython and in Cython, like it's almost C. Uh, I think that's why it's called like Cython. Uh, but basically you can have this performed, uh, perform, uh, perf uh, like quite performant uh, uh, typed code for number crunching things. So you kind of still stay within the Python realm, but uh, you also get the benefits of uh, like native code. Okay, I guess that's all for today. Um, so, how can people find you? Um, on Twitter, maybe. Like, uh, this is the easiest. And uh, yeah, we can share it on my Twitter and on, uh, at the end of the conversation. Um, on, on Slack, um, on the DevSocks Club as well. Uh, yeah. Uh, mainly, these two, these are the two main easiest way. Okay, thanks for the chat. Thanks for joining us today and uh, uh, sharing your experience with us. And uh, yeah, nice. it was nice chatting with you. Thank you. Thank you again for having me. And yes, it was <laughs> yeah. nice. And uh, I just wanted to say thank you, everyone, to for joining us today and asking questions. Yeah. <laughs> Indeed. Yeah, well, I guess uh, that's it. Um, have a great weekend. You too. Thank you.